Welcome to the Transatlanticist Politics Podcast at the American Centrum in Hamburg. As always, I'm your host, Andrew Sola. It's Women's History Month, so we're going to talk about feminist foreign policy, which is something of an old topic, but also a new topic, and also provide an update about a number of issues relating to the ever more complex war in Ukraine. However, as many of our listeners know today, Hamburg was on the front page of world newspapers because of a terrible mass shooting that took place here on the 9th of March, which was last night for us, just about 12 hours ago. We're recording this on the morning of the 10th, so there's still a lot of information we don't know. What we do know is a gunman with a pistol and multiple magazines went on a shooting rampage in a church of the Jehovah's Witnesses, which is a pacifist Christian sect. The shooter killed seven people and wounded many more. And apparently the shooter also died in the event. Apparently he was a member of the church and he had been expelled some months ago, but the investigation is ongoing. How did he get the weapon? How did he get the ammunition? None of this we know. I think that's all besides the point right now. Uh, I think it's fair to say that the very peaceful city of Hamburg is shocked and traumatized by this event. And our sympathies at the American Centrum go out to all of the victims' families and friends, as well as the fine citizens of Hamburg. Here with me today to discuss these issues is Dr. Gunter Donner, our expert on all matters related to the European Union and German politics. Gunter, before we get into feminist foreign policy, however, is there anything you would like to say about the shooting in Hamburg and the relative rarity of mass shootings in Hamburg and Germany when compared to the United States? Well, uh, this is a shocking event. I couldn't think of a similar dreadful occurrence here in Hamburg during the last decades. Uh, it's probably uh, an AMOC-related thing of an individual, probably a disturbed individual. Uh, the question remains, how could this person acquire uh, firearms and ammunition? To, to give you a short answer, this is, this is very difficult here in Germany. You're double and triple checked for whatever. There are basically three types of arms licenses. One that would only allow you to collect arms. Most, uh, in most cases, arms no longer ready for for being um, uh, used uh, as a collector. The second is as a sportsman, you have to acquire after several years of training in, in, in a sports club. Through your club, you can acquire to have this license, which would never permit you to carry this uh, loaded and in operational mode uh, in the public. The third and extremely rare one is the full arms license, which allows you to carry a concealed weapon. This is normally only available for people in an exposed social situation, say, of the judiciary for self-defense. It's controlled extremely strictly. If a judge or politician has yes. been, say, threatened multiple times, they might get yes. a, a concealed and, and carry permit. And a training with police forces. You, you need a training for this, otherwise you are a danger to the public. 
And what about the ammunition situation? Yeah. So acquiring a weapon is one thing, but how strict are the controls on individual rounds of, of that is strict. ammunition? Uh, that, that is strict. You need a, a fourth license to acquire ammunition, and the ammunition is then graded to what type of weapon you use it for. Of course, a hunter keeps track of whatever shot uh, he, he or she might have fired and uh, this has to be controlled. Ammunition has to be stored in, in a safe place separate from, from firearms. And the amount of ammunition you can purchase and the amount of ammunition you have spent is checked when you buy it. So it's very difficult to do it. But let's face it, there is a black market. And there's a black market beyond our borders as well. And for enough money and with a few connections, you can you can buy what you want. This is, of course a higher hurdle than walking into the next pawn shop and buy the stuff you need. Okay, well, again, our sympathies go out to the people of Hamburg. Yeah. And the victims, families, and friends. So let's change our subjects now and introduce, I think, what is, for me, a really positive development in uh, the foreign policy world which is the concept of a feminist foreign policy. And it is International Women's Month. That's not actually why I chose this topic for this month, but it it fits anyway. More importantly, I chose it because the new green foreign minister of Germany, Annalena Baerbock, has been officially supporting and pursuing what she calls a feminist foreign policy. And there are so many misconceptions about this, and I think I should just start by saying that like a certain percentage of people, many of them conservative men, just hear the phrase feminist and then anything, and certainly feminist foreign policy, and suddenly freak out like they can't even imagine what what possibly could be meant by this. And I think if we explain this a little bit better in a more nuanced way, I don't think it is being in any way extreme or radical, but I'll get to that. So the concept of a feminist foreign policy has been around for a long time, but the first country to officially implement the concept was Sweden in 2014. A feminist foreign policy has since been adopted by Canada, Mexico, and France. Uh, What's odd is the new right-wing government of Sweden actually just canceled feminist foreign policy, which is a little bit odd. It's a reverse cancellation, as it were. As I just said, Annalena Baerbock, the new German uh, foreign minister of the Green Party, announced that Germany will now pursue explicitly a feminist foreign policy. So I think we should start by defining it. And this is where things start getting <laughs> difficult. After, yes, we get, after we get over the, the shock of being like, what is a feminist foreign policy? If you start looking into this, there are contested definitions. Some policymakers stress the feminine part of the feminine foreign policy. They insist that gender equality and the fair treatment of women should be a guiding principle of foreign policy. However, others like Baerbach insist that this view is much too narrow, and she rejects that narrow view. She uses the concept of feminist foreign policy, but expands it to include not only women, but also historically marginalized people ethnic minorities, religious minorities, people with disabilities, etc. In short, it is a people-focused perspective that privileges inclusion, social justice, and the reduction of structural 
and historical inequalities. These are liberal goals, and there doesn't seem to be much controversial about this definition. So why did the new Swedish government cancel feminist foreign policy? Uh, Tobias Billström, the Swedish foreign minister who did the canceling, said, and I quote, gender equality is a fundamental value in Sweden and also for this government. But we're not going to continue with a feminist foreign policy because the label, the label obscures the fact that Swedish foreign policy must be based on Swedish values and Swedish interests. And I think here he is basically saying the label isn't politically appealing to his party or his coalition, so they just need to get rid of the label. Anyway, it's a, it's a confusing comment for me. So the definition of a feminist foreign policy is still being contested, and I think this debate about what it means is a good one to have. So having looked at all of this, how do I understand feminist foreign policy and how do I think you should understand it, audience? I look at feminist foreign policy as taking an important role in a much larger foreign policy debate between power and self-interest-based foreign policy, which we also call realpolitik, versus a morals-based or values-based foreign policy, often for humanitarian purposes. This is arguably the oldest debate in foreign policy. Should a nation try to do good deeds in other countries, or should a nation use its power simply to maximize its own self-interest? And of course, there's a third option. Sometimes a country can maximize its own self-interest and do good deeds, but there's still this cleavage between a values or humanitarian-based foreign policy and a uh, power-based one. To me, it's clear that the feminist foreign policy is clearly on the side of this morals or values-based approach. They think nations can and should do good in the world. And feminist foreign policy focuses on improving the welfare of women, families, marginalized groups in other countries. That is a humanitarian focus. Of course, one potential concern that comes up is this. The uh, feminist foreign policy can sound a little lovey-dovey. Can it deal with naked power politics, realpolitik, as we're seeing in the Russian war of aggression on Ukraine? I certainly think it can. Baerbach herself has been a staunch supporter of Ukraine, much, much more so than the more cautious members of the German political establishment. Indeed, the feminist foreign policy approach explains why nations who care about democracy, liberalism, human rights, freedom of opportunity, and the rule of law should support Ukraine with weapons, not just to support them with words, but with weapons, and oppose Russia with force, real force. It is the morally right thing to do, and a feminist foreign policy can and should be violent at times. So there is power built into it. There's nothing to say that a humanitarian approach can never resort to force. So I don't think the feminist foreign policy is necessarily pacifist at all. And I think it can deal with not only issues about socioeconomic and historical inequalities, but it can deal with real power as well. So Gunter, that's my little briefing. Mm -hmm. What do you think of this analysis and how might you uh, revise it? 
let me start with, I think, the basic, the com- common denominator, and that will be shared by a person like Bildström, because it's it's already arrived in, at the level of values of, of Swedish society, and it did so many, many years ago. Sweden was perhaps more progressive in this than the most progressive of institutions according to women's rights and women's integration or future integration uh, into society. That's the European Union. And never before has there been such an intense discussion, which I personally vividly remember during my 30 years in Brussels. So nobody in his, in his or her right mind will actually deny that the totally equal status for women in our societies, including uh, access to education, equality of remuneration and pay, chances to, to, to live a self-defined, fulfilling life, are of the essence and the cornerstone of democracy. So the leftovers from the past, church-inspired in many cases, women at the hearth at home and, and men out to whatever, uh, purposes, that's completely outdated. And it's been thrown to the junk pile already. In Sweden? Not just in Sweden. In a Catholic country like, like France, you see the same. Wherever traditional conservatism, moral conservatism has been overcome, you would see this integration. It's a mere and sheer social, moral, but above all, it's an economic necessity. We need female skills on the workplace. And in order to, 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 to benefit from this, we need educated, well-trained, mobile and ambitious young women to dedicate their life to high-quality work. But back to, to feminist foreign policy, the cornerstone of it is uh, how can we manage to achieve this re-evaluation of the female role in society to the benefit and this of course with foreign policy is rather easy to do what does foreign policy mean it means negotiating with the upper echelon of foreign countries political establishments so we can tell them we can make statements we can tie it and this was done in the case of mrs Baerbock to a development aid to nations this is quite easy to define and let me add it's not very expensive so you go to a place X in a, a third world country, Y, and you talk to people who say, yes, we have some money for your purposes here, but criteria A to Z have to be fulfilled if you wish to get them. And these criteria are for you to define. Uh, the, the summit will be limited because our d- development aid in total isn't too much. Uh, and then you can say, well, I have tied down German development aid, German political support, to a policy that is about to improve the lot of women on spot in this country where the money goes, which is not bad, but it's not very much. Let me add critically, as a socio-economist, really wiping out, eradicating negative and existing negative conditions for women at home here in Germany would start somewhere else. Let me name it. It's the pension scheme and the work life work balance. So your pension depends on how many years you have earned what. So if you have 
part-time work, and many women do part-time work, your pension will be ridiculous. Gunther, you seem to be saying that uh, the feminist foreign policy should start at home. Any policy to to touch the issue of upgrading the fate of women in society should start at home. Education, training, the combination of the mother's role, which many women wish to to live out uh, and work. Healthcare is the same for men and women, but pension is the huge difference. Okay, good. We talk about think, the average I, I, I think I think your, your point is clear about the uh, domestic approach to uh, writing some economic injustices and how we value women's work. For many years, Western nations, including Germany, have supported the education of young women in Afghanistan. And in this case, or in that example, a feminist foreign policy doesn't seem to change Germany's commitment to the education of young girls in Muslim countries who are not entitled to an education. I don't think anyone disputes that. But again, I think if we just restrict the feminist foreign policy to this sort of humanitarian and and domestic sphere, we forget that it might actually have a role in making our own Western liberal ideas about freedom and equality, freedom of speech, freedom of opportunity, you know, we can make that approach from a, a real politique perspective too, that, that we can actually, you know, use the concept of a feminist foreign policy, not only to do humanitarian things, but to punish. And here, what I'm thinking is, why couldn't a feminist foreign policy be used, for example, to sanction even further, say, Afghanistan? And already the argument is that the Taliban won't get a lot of funding because they won't allow women to do, to do, uh, to, well, to work, to work for NGOs and whatnot. So uh, could, could we also use the concept of feminine foreign policy as a bludgeon to force developing countries to become more liberal and Western-like. And that then raises another problem, if that's the right thing to do. Well, um, the right thing to do, sanctioning countries, uh, I think one should entice countries for certain changes, if you can. And let me add, foreign policy is not just dealing with the poorest nations of the world. Those are by nature, in the situation, they're happy with what they get. And what you mentioned, shall we sanction Afghanistan and the Taliban? We may, but we will hit and we will affect negatively the poorest of the poor, uh, certainly not the unknown rulers and tyrants of this country. But let me add, do we, will we do the very same in Qatar and Saudi Arabia? That's what I was... And we won't. That, I bet that was exactly, we won't. That's what I was exactly and, and going that's for. And that's where window dressing sets its steps in. And window dressing is part of foreign policy and has been part of any foreign policy through thousands of years, more so today in a media-based society than 500 years ago when a few tyrants had to just to, to, to be of the same opinion. But... The window dressing aspect to me is we tell the African nation, you leave that and you do this. Shall we say the same to the rulers of 
of all countries in the Arab world? And shall we do the same in other countries, not necessarily just Islamic countries or others where there are discriminations of whatever nature? And if we are not very just in this, if we're not doing it wherever we go, is it really credible what we are doing or is it, as I said, window dressing? The, and, and, and I'll just end this because we have to move on by, by summarizing, again, what I said in my little intro to feminist foreign policy is this basically what we've done, Gunter and I have rehashed some of the criticisms that have always mm-hmm. been focused on the so-called morals-based foreign policy. And for decades, for example, the U.S. has been criticized because we claim to like to export democracy abroad, except when it comes to allies who are undemocratic. And then who cares about the humanitarian and liberal aspects of our foreign policy? At the end of the day, foreign policy and international relations comes down to power politics. And the best then we could hope for from a feminist foreign policy is, as you described it, it's merely window dressing. And when push comes to shove, when your back is against the wall, you don't rely on values, you rely on power. Okay, so let's move on to a variety of things regarding Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And uh, just just brief updates. So first of all, this fierce battle is raging and has been for about seven months in, in Bakhmut. Gunter, can you just briefly describe, I know you're a hobby hobby military historian, what is the point of, of this seemingly insignificant city? Why are both sides pumping so much uh, blood, money, and treasure into this mm-hmm. city that was once a mere 90,000 people? Well, of course, the, the Russians attack and the Ukrainians have to react or to withdraw. That's the first thing. Why do the Russians attack there? The Russians attack there for two main purposes. The long-debated huge Russian offensive hasn't materialized and won't materialize because it can't. The Russians have and you still have a numerical superiority of soldiers and terrestrial gear, tanks and artillery. They lack a strategic momentum and they lack um, resources for a full-scale strategic offensive. A strategic offensive is not sending wave after wave of cannon fodder across a hundred yards of no man's land. That was done in in the First World War at a much greater level, of course. Uh, So what they do is to keep up appearances and to keep up pressure on the Ukrainians, they do what they can with the troops they have at their disposal. That is, the mercenaries basically recruited from, as I've just heard, uh, uh, not only prisons but lunatic asylums, they are just sent over as cannon fodder. Then other troops may follow, but this is a stupid, primitive, frontal assault against well-entrenched other forces, and you prepare this by dumb artillery fire, mostly dumb artillery fire, uh, which consumes thousands of of rounds per week for a rather cumulative small number of direct hits. So the Ukrainians react with what they can. What do they expect from holding on at Bakhmut? They expect that the Russians, what they do at Bakhmut, they could do at other places. Maybe at places where the Ukrainians are planning their spring offensive, which is due, as I see. And if it's not not coming, if there will be no Ukrainian offensive, 
Ukraine's prospects to to survive the war will be lowered. Uh, so they have to prepare an offensive, a strategic one, to win space, to win territory, to encircle Russian units, to make the Russian entrenched front crack. For this, they will use the new Western uh, equipment, long-range artillery, rocket artillery, modern tanks, and they will probably use them as good as they can. And they sh- they, they've shown us in September that they are able to. Uh, I expect something similar to this, we don't don't know where it will where they will hit, and they are well advised not to reveal this prematurely. So uh, the Ukrainians will have to keep the Russians tied down, where as long as the loss ratio remains, uh, it's it's a very brutal business to figure that out. But the loss ratio is still favourable for the Ukrainians, and if the Ukrainians wouldn't uh, resist at Bakhmut, they would have to resist somewhere else. So why not resist in the first place? That makes a, a lot of sense. So uh, we'll see in these next couple of weeks, we'll, we'll see what happens yeah. to Bakhmut. So another issue related to uh, Russia and Ukraine was Olaf Scholz's trip to Washington, D.C. last week. And there was a little bit of controversy about this. At least the mm-hmm. press corps was kind of annoyed because mm. typically if you're going to, if, if a chancellor of Germany is going to visit uh, the president of the U.S., you will have the press corps coming along. There will be press releases, a press conference, at least some statements. Pomp and circumstance, we call this in England. And and nothing, nothing except one. I thought it was actually zero interviews, zero press engagement at all. But Schultz did give one interview to Fareed Zakaria, the excellent Fareed Zakaria on, mm-hmm. on CNN. And this is what Schultz said. He just said he was there to talk to Joe Biden. He didn't give any specifics about that. Mm-hmm. Schultz said, I like Joe Biden. Some important statements he made to Fareed were, one, Germany will continue to provide Ukraine with humanitarian and financial support, as well as weapons. So there's the, apparently the meeting was not about cutting off the, the support. He was a little bit uh, confident, and I thought it was good because Germany should be confident. He said that no one expected one year ago that Germany would survive getting no gas from Russia, but we did, speaking of uh, the German government and the German people. And indeed, there was a lot of hand-wringing about this a year ago, and Germany seems to have come through the winter quite fine without relying on Russian gas too much. He also stressed that Germany spends the most on defense in all of Europe, which is, of course, a little bit disingenuous. You know, people like to criticize Germany not spending a lot on defense. He gave another metric, which is, uh, as it were, a net amount Germany spends the most, but that's disingenuous a little bit because the metric that NATO uses is 2% of GDP, whether that's your little Estonia or big Germany. So while Germany does indeed spend more as a gross amount, it has never reached the 2% figure. While other countries like Estonia, I think, just announced uh, that they're raising their targets to uh, 3% of GDP. And if Germany spent 3% of its GDP on defense, that would be quite remarkable. That's Mm -hmm. a lot of tanks and planes and ammunition. Indeed. Uh, Lastly, Fareed raised issues about the China and Berlin-Beijing relations. Uh, He pressed Schultz specifically about American-German unity on issues related to China. Schultz responded by saying that 
the US and America are very much aligned on insisting that China does not supply weapons to Russia. But he evaded the question about whether or not sanctions would be applied to China if they do decide to send weapons to Russia. He finally noted that both he and President Xi came out publicly together to condemn the use of nuclear weapons. And I think that is actually a good thing. I mean, that sort of calmed my nerves a little bit. Anyway, still, it's unclear what the true purpose of the visit was. And I was thinking about the news that happened after the visit. And of course, there is this New York Times report and some report in the German press that Ukraine uh, or Ukrainian actors uh, sabotaged the Nord Stream pipeline. And I thought maybe that was the reason that he came over, maybe to give Biden some uh, intel in person. But that's just conspiracy thinking. Um, Gunter. The joke about the conspiracy theory aside, why do you think Schultz went, and why don't you? Th- why do you think he wasn't more open about what they were discussing? It's it's curious. Uh, well, uh, much of course will be speculation, but Schultz, like him or not, he's an experienced tactician. I think the the Abrams tank mystery to me seems the most important issue on the table. What's come out is that. That evidently was a junk in between German leopards sent to Ukraine and American readiness to furnish Ukraine with the Abrams tank, which is a completely different type of weapon. As we all know, the Abrams is a fantastic tank, but it's been conceived for the American way of conventional warfare, which always contains total air superiority. So carrying forward the module service stations for this highly sophisticated weapon, the different type of fuel it uses, all the, the incremental, in, built-in additional difficulties for logistical difficulties to supply this new arm, that was heavily denied in Germany. And then it came out from the White House that evidently there was something behind the curtain. And I think that had to be straightened out because that is very poor style. That's one thing. The other is... Poor style, by which you mean that... Uh, I mean, you can't... The Ger- Schultz holding holding leopards hostage until Biden released the Abrams. You think that was taken poorly in D.C.? Of course. Uh, as an American, I would have been deeply offended uh, because America does so I much... I wasn't deeply offended. Yeah, you were. Well, <laughs> uh, my, my German half is now sending leopards, thank God, and my British half has always been at the forefront of supporting you. Ukraine. So I have two two things to pick from. Uh, no, but uh, pressing the US by the, this way to, to do something so that we can tell our voters now we are have to follow. Uh, I mean that was that was that was that was. So you're no, suggesting no. this was a mending bridges visit? Of course, and and he had many new things to 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 reveal mm-hmm. uh, because there's a change, an ongoing change in the basic mentality of his party. We all know that his party had deep ties with Russia, with Putin's Russia, for decades, as had the Merkel, but the the SPD had more and they were deeper. And what happened during the last weeks, two, three, four weeks, uh, in change within the SPD is remarkable. The two top brass functionaries, uh, Klingbeil and Mützenich, Mützenich of very pro-Schroeder, pro-Russia segment of the party, they travelled to Kiev and had talks there. And uh, I think Scholz wanted to reassure that he finally got, his finally 
this party got the message. There is no other thing but you cannot at the same time require we have to negotiate with Putin and in Brussels you say, well, let's prepare a special tribunal, Nuremberg style, for those responsible for the mass murders in Ukraine. Uh, do you wish to combine them, shall Putin and uh, Lavrov and consorts at their theoretical uh, Nuremberg trial negotiate uh, over peace? Do you wish to indict them or do you wish to negotiate with them and to further believe in what they say? Uh, you can't do both, to my reading. Uh, so I think the SPD has changed and they have changed for a third very German reason. A staunch Bolshevik, Frau Wagenknecht, she, she's, a, she's, a, she's a self-declared communist, a member of the, the still member of the Linke, She's probably in the first steps of founding her own movement of anti-weapon delivery, anti-Ukraine support, justification of Russia has her own rights in the whole affair that have to be guaranteed and, and nonsense of that sort. Uh, and she does that in public. She has about 600,000 signatures uh, in favor of her petition, which isn't much. Uh, the combined parties of the extreme right AFD and the De Linke together had 6 million votes during our last election. So 10% of uh, signatures out of this pot of, of potential supporters of such ideas isn't too much. But this draws or forces the social democrats to step back and to take to seek distance from this movement. And I think exactly that's what he's doing. Yeah, good. Uh, the, the just going back to our previous conversation about feminist foreign policy, I talked about the debate between a real politique and a humanitarian focused foreign policy. Of course, there's a third third way of looking at this, which is the structural approach, which is that foreign policy is very much shaped by internal political issues. And you've essentially given me the structural analysis that Schultz has to basically keep his own internal public mm -hmm. on board with his policy about Ukraine. And that means doing certain things that will aggravate Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. which might then require a trip to uh, bandage some, some wounds. Anyway, I, I get no sense that in any way there is a rupture in German-American relations. relations. Mm -hmm. and, and that's always a good thing. Uh, strong partnerships. Uh, but let me add, I mean, I'm, sure. not, a vote, I'm not a voter, Schultz, uh, you will know, but uh, he's clever enough to do this without much bang, bang and alarm. So he, he must have understood fully that, that something had to be mended. I, I, don't, went there. I don't think Macron would go to uh, no. DC without the full pump. And of course not. Of course not. <laughs> okay, we just have a, a little bit of time for one final mm. point. We can talk about various scandals uh, later in a future episode. But There are always plenty the, of scandals. Oh yeah, there are plenty of scandals. You know, one one goal of of certainly the U.S. and and I would say NATO and Europe also is to contain this conflict in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So the opposite point must be then it's in Putin's interest to expand the conflict. Mm -hmm. And the two areas where this will most likely happen and is happening is in both Moldova, a teeny tiny country, uh, actually on the western side of. Ukraine, and of course, Georgia, which waged a five-day war with Russia some years ago. 
Um, and there's been a lot of uh, political strife in both Moldova and Georgia. So can you just give us an update, Gunter, on what's going on in Georgia and Moldova pretty quickly, please? Uh, yes, I do. But it's, uh, it's, I'm very grateful that you raised this subject because what, what I would like to see is all eyes on these two countries. Really? What's, yes. What's going on there uh, is probably the prelude to uh, what is a post-Ukraine uh, conflict or uh, uh, an add-on to the ongoing, everlasting Ukraine-Russian conflict. So let's start with Moldova, an utterly poor country, roughly one-third of the territory, one-fourth more, was annexed by the Russians many years ago. They have several thousand troops there, probably quite isolated, extremely old weaponry. But they're sitting there, and Russia is actively trying to destabilize the Moldovan government, which is pro-Europe and which opts and wishes and dreams of being uh, becoming a candidate for the European community. This, of course, is very, very far in the future for many reasons, let alone the poverty and the misery and the corruption there. But uh, the Russians wish to wipe it out. And they have this fancy nation which Putin loves to create, artificial nations. And this nation there is Transnistria. Few people will ever have heard of that. Uh, it's run by a clan of Putin servants. Uh, it's a dictatorship, and it's supported by the uh, by the Russian military presence there and their own armed party militia. It's no military uh, uh, of, of no military relevance for the Ukraine war, but it's it's a finger in the wound, and you can at any given time exploiting the poverty. Moldova depends totally on, on Russian gas for, for for energy and they can't pay for it anymore. So people are enticed to go into the streets and to demonstrate against pro-European government. The EU reacted quickly, sending money, reducing the gas price, which is counterproductive because the money ends in Russia. But you have to help those in favor of democratic rule of law in Moldova instead of turning into another a Putin-ruled quagmire. What's going on in Georgia uh, is enormous because yesterday, to give people a bit of information, Georgia is a, was attacked in 2008 by Putin and Abkhazia and Ossetia were declared independent republics. They are puppets. These were pro- of, province, provinces of Georgia yes, that were carved out. That's it. Uh, um, the war was very active. It was very short-lived because the Georgian army was no, no match for the Russian might. And um, the then Georgian, very pro-European president, Sashkashvili, had a very a biography that, that merits a Hollywood film. He's now slowly but painfully dying in jail. He was indicted of a, probably made up, completely made up charges by the Georgian government that turned out to be supported by Putin. Now we know that it was supported by Putin. And we have a president, a, a lady, Salome Zurabishvili, she's pro-EU and pro-Europe. She's at present in America. I don't know why, because she was probably afraid to never be able to leave her country. And the prime minister, who is a Putin servant, a lackey, Irakli Garbishvili, his party is called the Georgia Dream Party. Uh, and this party won the election because they had unlimited material resources. Nobody knows where from. And uh, they introduced a press law, the exact copy of the 2012 
Russian FSB written press law indicting any institution receiving 20% uh, or more of money from abroad as a foreign agent. Uh, and that is exactly the legal frame uh, uh, the Russians use to wipe out NGOs and uh, whatever in Russia, and the same was about to happen in Georgia. Tens of thousands of people went into the streets before their parliament. They uh, resisted uh, brutal police uh, measures to discourage them. And now, for the time being, the government withdrew this legal project, which does not mean that the government has changed. The government is still the same crooks, and they are pro-Putin, and, and they probably depend on Putin financially. So the thing with Georgia is democracy there is really at stake. Uh, we have to look what we can do. We have to look out what Putin does, because one alternative for him, if he ever were to, to get really stuck in Ukraine, let's just for a minute think the Ukrainians Ukrainian start an offensive and cut his supply lines to Crimea. One road and his rotten bridge. If they do so, all his soldiers will be trapped on Crimea as were the Nazi troops in the Second World War. In this case, he could start new fronts. And I wouldn't rule out that Georgia, which, which has clear uh, frontier, common frontier with Russia, uh, is, would be the first candidate. Moldova is too far apart, and there he has to rely on destabilizing what's there. In Georgia, he could easily intervene. You know, many Russians fled military conscription to Georgia. Wait and see when they will be forced and sent back. All this is possible. I wouldn't rule it out. But the success of the pro-democracy demonstrators yesterday and the days before uh, shows us that it's worthwhile to closer look at these remote countries, remote worlds of living with their own problems. But these problems one day may be ours in one way or other. Well, the, the great example that Ukraine sets is, and, and Ukraine has some important geographical advantages that Georgia does not. One, they have a land border to a NATO country, which allows supplies to come in. And they're big enough that they can actually match, even though outnumbered, they can match the Russian military, which certainly Georgia would not. If Georgia went on a full-scale defense, Georgia would, as a country, probably be annihilated first. Yes. And then there would be no way for, for the West to support it. Yeah, but uh, the, the uh, desire to contain conflicts is always very difficult uh, because if one side does not want containment, they can easily put their fingers on various levers elsewhere. And that's indeed what we're seeing in Georgia and Moldova. Last yes, comment, Gunter. Let me add, the, the European Union again, I, I mean, we, we are not in a situation where we have to send arms now to these places, to, 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 to make that clear. What Europe did in, in Moldova by investing small amount of, of money for the measured in these standards, it really helped to many many people to survive because it's very cold there in winter, and if you can't if you can't heat, uh, you're you're in dire straits. So giving aid to those who deserve it, not to sharpen social cleavages and desperation of individuals. Because the more desperate a person gets, the more open-minded they are. They are to poisoned messages from people and institutions like the, the FSB and, and Putin. 
the thing is you have to stabilize the individually. And the individual is looking, where will I be next week, next month, and half a year? Uh, and so the Jeez, idea, Gunter, that sounds a lot like a feminist foreign policy. <laughs> no, this is a, a problem-oriented... No, Gunter, it's still... You can read it different ways. You're making a feminist foreign policy argument. And since this is my maybe. podcast and we're running out of time, that's how we're going to end. Yeah, Thank good you. idea. If that's feminist policy, I'm in favor of it. Very good. Thank you, Gunter. And once again, a final note of condolence to everyone in Hamburg and the victims oh, yes. of the shooting. Dreadful occurrence. Stay strong. All right. See you next time, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. just so you know, once again, the views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.